question that they never can answer. I'll say to them, if Jesus has stopped healing today, would you please make a list for me of all the other things that he has stopped doing? The, the ugly fact of the matter is that the Greek word for salvation, sozo, also means healed, delivered, make whole, made whole, and prospered. If Jesus has suspended salvation, then he has suspended sozo. So your very salvation is in jeopardy. We must return to a biblical uh, reputation of Jesus mentality. Everywhere he went, he confronted uh, disease and sickness. He confronted the demonic and cast it out. He didn't make a production of it. He didn't exploit it, but he cast them out. And then there were uh, they began to follow him in a very real way. We need a return to biblical Christianity that follows the reputation of Jesus Christ. And I would add this one little bit. I don't want to be yeah. a practical cessationist either, because there are a lot of people who claim in their statement of faith in a church, oh, we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We believe in all these things. We believe in it ideologically, but I don't think that's enough. What you're provoking yeah. us in this book is really calling us to be people who contend for this in our everyday lives. It is no good if it's just theology or concept. It needs to be demonstration. Well, Larry, in the words of the great theologian Elvis Presley, we need a little less conversation and a little more action, please. We, we, there is no reason for us to preach a Jesus who can't be experienced today. There is no reason for us. You know, my husband and I, every single week of our lives, we lay down our lives to contend for biblical revival, a return to the book of Acts in our generation. We do this every single week. There's no reason for us to do that if he's not going to show up. But what we have found is that when we preach the real Jesus, when we host God through prayer and worship, and when we preach the reputation of Jesus Christ is revealed in his word, the Holy Spirit will always show up to confirm that. So we've seen miracles. We've seen people set free, delivered. We've seen people called to the ministry, lives irrevocably changed under the power of the Holy Ghost. The fact is cessationism is a theology that we have invented to excuse our spiritual laziness. Mm. But every time real prayer and worship occurs, every time a love for the scripture, both in our private life and in our public preaching is demonstrated, the Holy Spirit is always going to show up and confirm and affirm that. The video clips we just heard came from an interview conducted on June 7th, five days ago, between Larry Sparks of Destiny Image and Lydia Marrow, who recently just published a book with Destiny Image titled Death to Counterfeit Christianity. And they're discussing this in their 26-minute interview, which we will play some clips today, and we're going to focus quite a bit on Scripture in talking and um, addressing some of the things that are stated here. Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive, as always, episode, because there's going to be some discussions about topics that are very broad and that have been debated for centuries by people far smarter than I am and actual biblical scholars. But I did want to talk about this today because the title of this video that I actually came across when it initially came out was, Are the Elect, that was in capital letters, Being Deceived? The Religion of the End Times. They begin their conversation with something to, to kick it off in saying that the elect are deceived in this. And I found some discrepancies that I noticed as I listened to this conversation. So I hope that you'll join me in this. Uh, regardless of what your stance is, is what we're going to be talking about uh, as one topic here anyway in this episode today. I hope that you'll have um, a graciousness to be able to listen and that above all that you'll go back and do your own study 
in the Word of God, in the history, uh, in, in church history, that you will do due diligence on your own and not just listen to me and, and adopt what I'm saying or listen to Lydia and adopt what she's saying. But I'm going to encourage you to go back to the Word of God, to go back to the Word of God, church history. But we're going to take a look at what they mean by the elect being deceived, some of the things that they say. And we're going to take a look at Scripture because the book of Acts is, is very much focused on in this conversation. And the point is, we need to get back to the, the book of Acts, the church of Acts. We need to be the Acts church once again. I want to look at that and, and just, again, give you some things to consider as we dive into this discussion on Destiny Image today. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. Not that I can see your hands on this episode, but how many of you have heard teachings focused and centered around, we need to get back to the book of Acts. We need to get back to the Acts church. We need to, there's no amen at the end of the book of Acts. And so we need to focus on what they did and we need to con- continue it on. And that we we must do those things and walk in power. If we don't have miracle signs and wonders that are exactly like what we see in the book of Acts and a continuation of that, then we're just not walking in power. And some may even go f- so far to say that that's not a full gospel. And I've talked about this before on another episode that there are people that say the full gospel must have miracle signs and wonders, casting out demons. Otherwise, it's not a complete gospel. And so what we're going to focus on once again is this interview that was conducted um, on June 7th by Larry Sparks and Lydia Marrow. Uh, Lydia Marrow is associated with uh, John Kilpatrick. She is the worship leader at his church, and she recently published a book called Death to Counterfeit Christianity. And I actually downloaded the Kindle version of this book and was looking, I have not read it. Let me just say that up front. But there is a search uh, ability on Kindle books that you can type in certain words and look and see. And so that's what I did. And I'm going to, I'm telling you that because it's going to be pertinent for what they're talking about in this discussion. Now, as I said before, there is no way, and I repeat, there is no way for me to cover the topic of what they're getting ready to go into, first and foremost, as far as them saying what is deceiving the church, that it is even deceiving the elect, even calling it an abomination and a doctrine of demons. So let's go ahead and begin with the opening of how Larry starts this conversation with Lydia. And as always, this is addressing the teachings. I'm not interested in going after the individual or or anything like that personal. What I want to look at is the teaching or the things that a certain, an individual is um, putting forth as truth whether it's about themselves or about what they're talking about. But in today's uh, episode, it's going to be about the teachings and things. And you may find things that that you agree with that she says. There are things that, again, that she said, I do agree with in in the problems that have been creeping into the church for a long time. Um, There's also things that she says I don't agree with. So anyway, let's go ahead and get started on this interview. The first thing that he talked about in the context of the end times, as the disciples were asking, what should we be looking for? I believe Jesus indicated that the great sign of the end times would be deception. And with that said, I want to bring on my special guest today, Lydia Merrow. She has written a new book that I believe is a handbook 
to discernment and actually cultivating a spirit of discernment in the days in which we are living. I don't know if any of us thought we would see some of what has been unfolding in the earth, but I do believe it means that we are very close, not only to the soon appearing of Jesus, but we are close to the last day's revival that scripture prophesied about in Joel 2, Acts 2, his spirit being poured out. Now, Larry goes on to introduce Lydia Miro, and they begin their conversation. But uh, depending on what your belief is as far as Acts 2, uh, the the passage where Peter is talking about uh, and referencing Joel, the passage in Joel, the Holy Spirit uh, was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Now, some people believe that he, there is a continuation of that outpouring, and then there's some people that believe that's already done. The Holy Spirit's already here. He's already been poured out. And so now the gospel is going forth and the the preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the call to repent and believe and put our saving faith in him. And there's a belief that, that he's still active in doing that, that he's still moving. Now, there are some discrepancies made between people when they talk about this, and I'm familiar with with this having come out of the hyper-charismatic movement. I don't know what Lydia considers herself, um, and as far as if she considers herself hyper-charismatic or charismatic, I don't know. But I'm, I'm going to just chime in here for a moment. I can, I can recall over the years hearing and even believing this type of teaching that there were two different groups of Christians. There were those that really didn't have the, the power of the Holy Spirit, may not even had the Holy Spirit because of the of the belief of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like a second blessing kind of, that that's when you receive power. And um, again, there's we can go into so much of this, and there's so much I want to talk about. But I remember those two distinctions being made, and the people that spoke in tongues and, and prophesied and believed in miracles, signs, and wonders, and had all these things that are manifesting in their church or claiming to be manifested in the church— um, that that those people were considered the ones that had the spirit versus you had the the dead people the frozen chosen you know uh, that that was a, a not a term of endearment that was used for people that did not speak in tongues and it was it was as if it was automatically assumed that those people just didn't have the Holy Spirit and I want to push back on that today and I've probably pushed back on other episodes in that but I'm going to push back on that today because of what's getting ready to be said here in just a moment. At any rate, Lydia goes on to talk about initially after Larry introduces her that she believes in an outpouring revival, the book of Acts reality. She focuses a lot of the, on this, especially in her ministry. I did go on her ministry page and notice that they, her and her husband, even she said this in her interview that they make sure week to week to focus on going, returning to the, the Acts church, the book of Acts. And she also believes the enemy will move in tandem with this. And that it's time to stand up. And so um, with that, Larry mentions uh, Isaiah 60 and that dual reality being present is what he states. And then about three and a half minutes in, he asks her the question of what is counterfeit Christianity. And she begins to for several minutes to focus on Acts again and how we need to get back to Acts and we are going to go through Acts very quickly and, and, and summarize, essentially, what was going on in the Acts of the Apostles. Luke wrote the Gospel of uh, Luke, as we know, and then he also wrote the second letter to Theophilus about the Acts of the Apostles. This is a historical account 
telling of how the early church came to be, what happened, how the apostles laid the foundation, and what continued on historically through the churches as the early church continued to grow. It ends with Paul um, being in prison, and we we are kind of left hanging to know what happens to Paul in in uh, the Acts of the Apostles. Of course, we know that Paul was martyred for the sake of Christ. But she does talk about this, how we need to get back to Acts, and she mentions a Corinthian passage. She doesn't mention it by name, but she does talk about how Paul said, I did not come to you with enticing words, but with power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and read to you not just one verse or a partial uh, area of a verse, but I want to read to you several verses because I think it kind of helps put things in perspective, and I'm just going to read it to you. And from there, you do your Bible study and look into it because it seems like that just taking that one verse, it focuses on it. And this is not the first time I've heard this. and I'm sure you haven't either. Someone taking this verse in 1 Corinthians 2 and making it seem like, well, Paul couldn't do any. He didn't bring just words. He brought a demonstration of power. And that means that he did all these signs and wonders and that that has to accompany your ministry. Otherwise, there's no power in it. First Corinthians chapter two. Let's begin with verse one. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Uh, and please notice that about Paul. This this is not showing a man that's arrogant and boastful. This is showing humility. It's showing the fact that he suffered um, because for, for the sake of Christ, and he was promised that would happen to him, um, that he would endure much things for the sake of the gospel. This is showing a man um, that's part of the church that's weak. And just remember that. I mean, that's something that's focused on in charismatic, hyper-charismatic movement is that you must have power. You can't show weakness. The church can't be weak. Well, if you look (laughs) at what happened to the early church and the persecutions they went through, just realize that as you're reading scripture about about what Paul's talking about here as as an apostle to the Gentiles. Verse three, again, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'm going to read on to verse 13. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God." And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And this passage goes on to talk about the the natural person cannot accept these things. You can only understand these things by the Spirit of God. And this seems to be referencing those that are regenerated by the Spirit of God to understand the gospel and their need for Christ and Him crucified. And resurrected, by the way. So this helps us to put it in perspective and just to kind of give you a little bit of an exercise. Whenever you hear a Bible verse, just one Bible verse, and it's just plucked out of its 
of its setting in scripture, you as a good Berean need to go back and make sure that you understand the historical context, the, uh, the author's intent. You need to understand what was meant by it, how it is applicable to your, to your life as a Christian. If it is, if it's descriptive, prescriptive, these are things that you need to be aware of and not just listen to someone say it because they are zealous or passionate or they can string together uh, great sentences. You want to study the Word of God so that you can continue to further in your fellowship with Christ. Let's keep going in their conversation and see where this leads, because after this mention of the Corinthian passage, she says there should be transformation, and I agree with that. A, A believer in Christ, a true believer in Christ, is going to be regenerated, and there's going to be transformation, and that's the work of God. That's the work of God in our lives. Because God doesn't fail at what he does. His promises are yes and amen. He, he is most assuredly going to fulfill his word. And his word is going to um, fulfill the purpose for which it was sent. And it is sent to minister of his son, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to save those who are lost and to bring those that are his to himself. So about seven minutes in, this is where we get to the first area of deception that they label as problematic for the elect. You have a chapter in here, and I remember I just heard you sharing about this, the whole connection between revival and the reputation of God. Because a lot of people listening to us right now, when they read the scriptures, particularly the book of Acts, and I would go a little bit further, first 300 or so years of church history, signs, wonders, miracles, demonstrations of the power of God are normal. But doctrine, and you and I full well know what this doctrine is, has infiltrated the church. It it, it starts with a C. I'm going to let you take it away because I learned about it in kind of the ivory tower halls of theological academia. But you are letting people know in a very real practical way, I'll just say it, cessationism is out there trying to infiltrate the church. I believe it's producing counterfeit Christianity. What does it look like and how does it fight against the reputation of God? Absolutely. I want to talk about this, Larry. I think that this is something that the church has to face head on. I want to say there's a lot of sincere believers that have been duped into believing this. And I love you. If you've grown up in a cessationist background, I love you. Jesus is calling you to a more biblical orthodoxy. Much as I love you, I'm not going to water down the truth for you. I got to interject here. And the reason why I have to interject just speaking personally. And there, and let me just say this in her book, there's a lot of personal accounts that she gives in the book. When I just looked, uh, gloss through it, there's a lot of personal accounts that she gives. So I'm going to offer some, uh, some personal thoughts here. I did not grow up in church. The church that I knew for, for half my life, um, almost 20 years, was uh, the charismatic and the hyper charismatic and the new apostolic reformation. That's what I knew. Uh, Word of Faith, Hypercharismatic, New Apostolic Reformation. So um, you can probably guess where I stood when I was in this movement of what I believed. And when I came out of this movement, I found that a lot of my beliefs were problematic because the gifts that I was espousing were not the same ones that were described in Scripture. They weren't. If I believed in fallible prophecy, that's not in Scripture. If I believed, for example, that Acts 2, I was taught um, that that was a private prayer language. I was taught that. 
and I was taught many times based on some of these passages, those were the, the foundation for a private prayer language. That's not what that says in Acts 2. And, and I, like I said, I've covered some of these other things before in other episodes, so you can feel free. I can put some links if you like. I'll put a few links to some episodes if you're interested in listening to them. But there were some hard things I had to face when I came out of this. And I did not come out of this movement immediately adopting cessationism. Some people will say that, well, you automatically just became such and such when you came out of this. You just swung the pendulum the other way. That's actually not what happened. It took me quite a while for me to work through things and still continuing to work through and to study scripture and to, and to make sure that my understanding of things um, doctrinally is sound to make sure that I have a proper understanding of scripture, not just for head knowledge, but I want to honor God. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a work that he does within us because he's the one that authored the word and his word has power. And we are being led by the spirit and by the understanding of his word to know how to walk in the ways of God. And so when I came out of this movement, and I don't know where you are on this, you may be completely different in your belief. And and let me just say this, as we're getting into this discussion a little bit, and we're just going to be in the shallow waters today on this as far as cessationism versus continuationism, and it's not going to be the entire topic today. I want to say this, a lot of times what we find is that there are people that are understanding that, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and on one side of the aisle, they're cessationists because they recognize it's a secondary issue, as long as the foundation of the gospel is intact and the fundamental things that are based on biblical Christianity are intact, then we're talking as brothers and sisters in Christ. Cessationism is a secondary issue. Continuationism is a secondary issue. Where a problem comes that I would argue as someone who was in this movement is that people are saying, well, I have these certain gifts, or there are people that teach that you have all the gifts and that you can activate the gifts. And my friend, that's not even biblical. First Corinthians 12, 11 makes it clear. We do not activate gifts. We don't have all the gifts. And even that passage is clear in and of itself in first Corinthians 12. To one is given this gift, to one is given another gift. The Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wills. Now, whatever your understanding is based on whether you believe all the gifts are still for today or you believe that there, that some of those gifts were actually apostolic gifts and that the apostles are no longer here today, which is what I believe. And at the same time, I do believe God still heals and he does miracles because he's God. And there are some people that will that will diminish that and they will basically say, well, you just don't believe in miracles. Therefore, you just don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You don't believe that the Holy Spirit moves or does anything. That is a false deduction, false deduction. So me getting to this point, almost I'm a little, I'm over four years out of this movement. That did not happen overnight. That was consistently me going and looking at things and testing experiences in accordance with scripture, not making the word of God align with my experiences not forcing it, not trying to plug it in and make it work, but testing my experiences in accordance with scripture. And what I found was that a lot of the gifts that people talk about that are today are not the gifts that are found in the Bible as far as the spiritual gifts are concerned. And what we what we taught, I, I taught prophetic classes. I taught I taught people about speaking in tongues and such. And because of the things I was taught, I was parroting 
what I had been told. I had not gone back to scripture to look and see, are these verses actually what that's talking about? Is that what Jude 20 actually means? Is that what Romans 8 is actually talking about? Is that what Acts 2 means? Is that what Acts 8 means? Is that what Acts 19 means? Is that what 1 Corinthians 14 means? What do all these mean? So I'm saying that to say this. This is not for me to, to, to tell you what to think. This is for me just to offer some input from someone who came out of this movement. And it took time for me to get to a point of saying, this is where I am with this. I cannot find the, the validation that what is being said that this is the same gift today is the same one in scripture. So that that's where I would give some pushback on that, some gentle, loving pushback. But um, let's go ahead and continue on. I, I just want to interject that for a bit, but let's go ahead and continue on with, with her thought about cessationism and what, what she believes it is. Cessationism is an abominable doctrine. I believe that if Paul was walking the earth right now, he would call it a doctrine of demons because it absolutely attacks the reputation of Jesus. First of all, cessationism would say that the fivefold gifts, the ministry gifts to the church, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist, died with the last apostle. The problem with this is they still like pastors, teachers, and evangelists. But if you if you claim to be an apostle or a prophet, they say that you're a liar. Um, let me just say this. The gifts have not ceased in any way, shape or form. That is nonsense. There's not one shred of scripture to back that up. Okay. So, um, first of all, Paul was still on the earth. Then that we wouldn't be having this debate. I don't think because the whole debate is as far as people that believe there's modern day apostles and prophets today with governing authority. That is the basis of the new apostolic reformation. Um, Paul actually had governing authority because he was technically an apostle of Christ because he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, who called him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And the thing is, when you look in scripture, for one thing, I'll make a, a couple of points here, because I was taught this the fivefold for years. I mean, I was taught this and this was ingrained to me. I had classes in, in the quote Bible college I talked about last week about apostolic foundations, about the fivefold ministry. Uh, it was covered for a long time, and it was in, it was drilled into us that apostles had uh, governing authority and that they were the builders and that prophets were needed because they were the visionaries, and they were the ones that helped to provide the vision for the apostles to know how to build, and that they were necessary for the church. And there's always this appeal to Ephesians 2.20 as the foundation. Again, <laughs> give some loving pushback and say, uh, as other people have said before, you only lay one foundation in a building. And the church has been being built for 2000 years. So to say that uh, apostles and prophets are still needed today, then that would seem that we're saying, well, the foundation's not complete. Well, if the foundation's not complete, then the church hasn't been being built for 2000 years. So how do you get around that? So there's that. And then there's also this focus on, again, the fivefold. Why is it not um, comprehensible? Or why is it not uh, a valid point to believe that the fivefold is still in operation today because we have scripture and we have apostles that are still ministering? We're still um, coming under the apostles' teachings like they did in Acts 2. And every time we read scripture and we read the New Testament and the epistles and the gospels and we read the Old Testament, we read about the prophets, why is that not enough to recognize that the fivefold is still there. And then today we have pastors, teachers, and evangelists. 
And another point that's made too, not just myself, but other, again, other people and scholars is that when Paul was nearing the end of his life, when he wrote his, his final letters to Timothy, his spiritual son, he did not appoint future apostles. He appointed overseers, elders, deacons in the church. Those, those were not apostles. The whole uh, structure of the church was not to continue the succession of the apostles. The apostles had received the foundation, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church was built upon that and is continuing to be built upon that. So to say, well, you know, that's just nonsense that you don't believe in the apostles and prophets. Well, I don't. I personally don't. And I was someone who came out of that movement, believed I was a prophet, was told I was a prophet, was under an apostle for years. And I don't believe that. Because I believe that every time I I read scripture, that I'm understanding it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that I am being ministered to because of the foundation that the apostles laid, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul talked about that in the Corinthians, that he laid a foundation, which was the gospel. He was an apostle of Christ. And as you've heard me talk about (laughs) ad nauseum on other episodes, there is a twisting of this teaching of the apostolic that has grossly come in, and the, I be, it, it's like tentacles that have come in. So when you believe that the apostles are no longer here today and they're no longer necessary be, because we have the Word of God that God inspired them to write and be carried along by the Holy Spirit to write and to lay the foundation for the church to be built, then you recognize that there were gifts that seemingly passed away with them because the fulfillment of the, the church being founded was completed because of God, because of, because of him using these men. And so with that, you'll see certain things that were ascribed to the apostles of Christ, that there were certain things they were able to do, or those under them that were, that were sent out uh, and um, commissioned, if you will, under them, that were able to do because they were under an apostle. You don't see every believer in the book of Acts doing the things that are talked about. You don't see all of them having dreams. You don't see all of them um, doing miraculous healings. And let's just say they're miraculous healings. When a man gets up after decades of not being able to walk and it was verified by those that saw him every single day and that they, they know that that's what took place and that this was, these were truly two apostles of Christ that those were bona fide things that happened. And then the church grew because of those things, because those things authenticated their ministry. Those, those things were not necessary for the gospel to go forth. They're, the power is in the gospel unto salvation for the Jew first and also the Greek. But those were not, the, the miracle signs and wonders were not absolutely necessary in order for the gospel to go forth. If that's the case, then there needs to be some explanation on their end of, of why Paul didn't do that every time he went to places, but he rather, it says more on more than one occasion, as we'll see in just a little bit, or we touch on, that he reasoned with people. He didn't have signs and wonders all the time when he went places. He reasoned with people from the scriptures, testifying of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to point that out, that when when we... Any of us that give this pushback of going, there aren't modern day apostles and prophets today like the ones in scripture. And again, I ask the question, if you don't believe that the modern day apostles today are uh, 
matching up to the the apostles of Christ that they're they're basically saying, well, we're, we don't believe that we're like the apostles of Christ. Why is the appeal to Scripture then to the apostles of Christ? It's not ever to any of the other apostles that were sent by the church in in saying that you're an apostle. You believe you have governing authority. Well, what do you believe that the apostles of Christ had? It's it's no different. There's still this appeal to the very verses in Scripture that are talking about the apostles of Christ when people talk about modern day apostles and prophets today. So you can't you can't cut it both ways and and claim one thing and then try to dismiss the other and try to negate what's going on. That needs to be addressed. At any rate, let me uh, keep going with what she says and see if there's anything else to discuss here. I love the word of God. I want it to be preached and taught with biblical credibility and authenticity. I want that. Let's do this. However, let me say this. I would rather watch paint dry than to experience a threefold ministry of pastor, teacher, and evangelist on their own. Once again, I'm going to make this appeal. If you believe that someone saying we don't have modern day apostles and prophets today means that you are missing part of the fivefold. And many of us that were taught the fivefold, it was is a quick, uh, made equivalent to like a hand, an analogy of a hand. If if we're saying that there are no modern day apostles and prophets today, and, and you're only believe and you believe well, you just believe that two of the five um, positions or offices are not here any longer. I think you're missing what Scripture is actually making very clear: is that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation for the church, and that the church has been being built and is continuing to be built. And when you're reading Scripture, guess what? It's apostolic and it's prophetic. And you're being ministered to, not in in a necromancy type way, but you're being ministered to by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles' teaching and the ministry of the the prophets of what was testified of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong. I I, I don't understand what's wrong with with that belief system or understanding. And perhaps I'm missing something. But at any rate, we'll keep going. Also, I've been to meetings where the apostles and the and the prophets were on their own. And I don't want a twofold ministry either, because I believe that gets so weird. People could hide their own Easter eggs and still be surprised. That's not going to help either. We need all five. We need every single member of the fivefold. This is how the body of Christ comes up to maturity. There's not one lick of scripture, Larry, that says that God stopped speaking to the church by his spirit, that he stopped using the fivefold gifts or that he stopped using miracles. Our cessationist uh, brothers and sisters, they like to say that the, uh, that Miracles are something that Jesus does from time to time in his sovereignty. He can do anything, but he doesn't really do that sort of thing anymore. The devil is a liar. Malachi 3, 6 says that he said, I am the Lord and I change not. Hebrews 13, 8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The reputation of Jesus in Acts 10, 38 said Jesus Christ went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. His reputation is when he walks in, salvation, healing, deliverance, prosperity, all of it, biblical prosperity, all of it walks in with him because this is who he is and this is what he does. Larry, the question that they never can answer, I'll say to them, if Jesus has stopped healing today, would you please make a list for me of all the other things that he has stopped doing? The the ugly fact of the matter is that the Greek word for salvation, sozo, also means healed, delivered, made made whole and prospered. If Jesus has suspended salvation, 
then he has suspended sozo. So your very salvation is in jeopardy. We must return to a biblical uh, reputation of Jesus mentality. Everywhere he went, he confronted uh, disease and sickness. He confronted the demonic and cast it out. He didn't make a production of it. He didn't exploit it, but he cast them out. And then there were uh, they began to follow him in a very real way. We need a return to biblical Christianity that follows the reputation of Jesus Christ. Now, I played this clip earlier, and I played the portion of this you just heard. But it's going to go on, and Larry's going to say, well, also, I don't want to be a practical cessationist and to say in my you know statement of faith that I believe in these things, but then I don't practice them. And um, that there, uh, Lydia talks about that there's no reason to preach a Jesus that, that cannot be experienced. Larry also says, and I didn't play this in the clip, but he, he tells Lydia that her book is something that Tozer or Ravenhill or Steve Hill would have written. And so Lydia makes this point. I want to touch on this really briefly, but she says, you know, the question that cessationists cannot answer is that if God has stopped doing miracles today, what else has he stopped doing? And I, I just want to say that's a fall again, a false deduction. That is um, an illogical fallacy that she's saying, because she's basically saying that, that cessationists believe that God does not do miracles today. That's not what, at least that's not what I would say. But I've heard people talk about this on both sides. And cessationists will actually say, we do believe that God heals and does miracles today. The difference is, is that cessationism says, we do not believe that there are people that still have the gift of healings, the gift of miracles, the the gift of prophecy, because the argument is that that would be a consistent gift in somebody, and we're just not seeing that. And then the things that are said to be miracles, they're not like someone getting their back healed, um, and or claiming that their knee is healed, and then they have to have still have to have back surgery or knee surgery or, or shoulder surgery or or whatever's going on, or they they claim that you know, different things that cannot be verified in meetings. And so we don't have area, we don't have a way to back that up with evidence that there was something going on before that. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with asking for evidence. <laughs> and if that's a problem in asking for evidence, that in itself seems problematic when you are not even allowed to ask for evidence because you're basically deemed that you have no faith. There's nothing wrong with asking for evidence. Okay. Cause we want God glorified and honored. And I do believe that God heals and does miracles. That That's an illogical fallacy to come to. That's false deductive reasoning to come to. And it's not an accurate question to ask someone who is a cessationist, quite frankly, because you're you're automatically assuming and believing they that they don't believe in miracles today. That's not true. And and I and let me say this too. Uh, there's there's not a clear passage in scripture that says that the gifts have continued. <laughs> So, and, and again, I would push back once again on the whole teaching of, are the gifts that you're espousing today, are they aligning with the gifts that are in scripture? That's the $64 million question to ask. Are they the same? And I think that we need to, to look at that and to see if they are actually the same or not. Now, as I go on in this interview, Larry says that we have lowered the bar by the lack of power. We have lowered the bar. Because right. of our lack of power. You were explaining that, and I think you said it so well. Now, what's interesting about that statement is that uh, just that simple statement of that uh, we have lowered the bar by the lack of power. I was actually reminded of something that I heard a, a year or more ago um, from Daniel Kalinda. 
And I just want to remind you of what he said, because I think it may be pertinent to this, and you can judge that for yourself, but when he says we've lowered the bar by the lack of power, uh, it reminded me of the claims that Daniel Kalinda made about the charismatic church and those on the opposite side of the aisle who pose questions about it. Listen, just listen to what Kalinda said and just see what you think of this. These evangelical heresy hunters have always hated charismatics. Why? Well, a lot of it, I think, just boils down to jealousy. Even Jesus, the Bible tells us, was delivered up by the Pharisees because of jealousy. And it's not difficult to understand why they're jealous. All of the biggest movements in the world are charismatic. Popular worship music is all charismatic. Most of the large churches in the world are charismatic. There's energy and excitement and fruit in the charismatic camp. And meanwhile, the critics sit there in their boring, depressing, dying churches, and they're jealous. But what's more, charismatics expose their spiritual bankruptcy. Because you see, if what the charismatics are experiencing is indeed authentic, then what does it say about the critics? Well, it makes them look really bad. It makes it look like they're missing something really important. And so rather than repent and seek God, it's a lot easier just to attack charismatics, accuse them of heresy, and claim that everything they're doing is counterfeit Christianity. That way you can feel better about yourself and save face in front of your friends without having to change the very attitudes and doctrines that keep you unfruitful. So I'm just wondering, um, I'm not sure what group Larry Sparks is talking about when he says that they've, that we've lowered the bar by the lack of power. If the charismatic church is the largest growing group, the fastest growing, has the best music, more fruitful because they have more numbers, more things going on, more manifestations, more power. I, I don't know it, who he's talking to in general that we have lowered the bar by the lack of power. I'm just offering that up for some some consideration because when I heard him say that immediately, I thought of that that statement that Daniel Kalinda made. And this was an episode that he did about what is the NAR and am I a part of it? Um, and, and as far as what the charismatic church was and that those who disagree with it are just jealous and they're not fruitful. And I find that type of talk very uh, unhelpful and it's really dismissive and, it, and it's ignoring the, the concerns and the, the teachings that are being perpetuated that are unbiblical. They're leading, they're deceptive. They're not leading people back to Christ. Uh, when you're talking about the NAR, when as far as what he's addressing, so just wanted to offer that as a side note. They do go on, which what I, the other thing I found interesting too is that the whole title of this uh, video that, that their discussion was are the elect being deceived, and they actually bring up Matthew 24. Larry poses the question to Lydia about the best way to protect against end time deception, and she talks about the celebrity Christianity, which I agree with that. And that happens across the board. It can happen even in in the non-charismatic circles that we begin to have this uh, celebrity Christianity and we put people up on pedestals. That can happen anywhere. And so we do, but we do see this in the charismatic church when we're talking about the charismatics. We do see this. We see it in non-charismatics. Nevertheless, that is a problem that I agree with, that we're putting people up on pedestals and then we're always wanting to glean from their teachings. And she talks about... And in, in, in different areas in the books, that there's things that I can uh, agree with on that. Um, she does make the distinction between on-fire churches and um, dead churches or the ones that are not spirit-filled. 
And again, those are distinctions that are made in the charismatic movement. And I think we need to be very cautious. I know that there would be there would be stated on the, the charismatic side, well, you know, you don't want to, you hear these statements of don't throw the baby out with the bath water and you don't want to, you got to eat the meat and spit out the bones. And, and I just find those types of analogies problematic because we're, we're not addressing the issue of what's going on in these areas of the movements that are very problematic and they're leading people into areas of new age occultic practices. They're leading away from into another gospel. These are we cannot ignore these and then just throw up these little um, quippy statements in order to brush away or diminish the fact of our favorite people that are well known in this movement of saying things that are highly problematic and highly unbiblical and are leading people away. We, we cannot do that with these little statements, these euphemisms, and then act like it's not a problem when it is a problem. And we need to care about the integrity. You know, she mentioned about in, having integrity and, and things uh, of that nature as a believer. Well, we need to care about the integrity of the truth of the word. And when the word of God is being ministered in a way that's not honoring God, and it's actually not even testifying of what that scripture means, then that's something we need to care about because that's part of our fellowship with God. And if we don't understand scripture properly, then we're not going to understand how to properly fellowship with God. And then we're going to be led astray and we're going to be deceived and we're going to be blown around by every wind of doctrine. We don't want to do that. We want to grow in spiritual maturity. And that begins with understanding the truth about scripture. They do talk about the Python spirit. She focuses on the Python spirit, which the Python spirit is not in scripture, by the way. Um, and when somebody says, some people say the spirit, they'll, they may mean it in the attitude of that. Let me just tell you in the hypercharismatic, that's not what they mean. They mean it's a demon. Okay. When it's taught like this, I have demonology books. I have demonology workbooks. I have, when they refer to the Python spirit, it's referred to as a demon. Let's just make that distinction right there. But she talked about how the Python spirit, when you, when you read in Acts 16, um, with the girl with the spirit of divination, um, she said that the Python spirit, it, it has a, it cuts off the breath of God. Larry Sparks, it believes that her book is a prophetic word for now. And she, she ends with saying that we have to stop obstructing God's move in people's lives and let him move. And sincere as that statement may sound, and I know I made statements like that. Well, we just need to let him move. We need to make room for God. Let me just tell you this. And, and when we say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit showed up. He dwells within his people. So these whole th- this whole thing of we have to stop obstructing God's move, that statement seems to negate God's sovereignty. God does not stop being sovereign because there's, because there's sin in the world and the world is in a fallen state because of man disobeying and rebelling against God. God has not lost his sovereignty. He's not lost omnipotence. He's not lost omniscience. He's not lost his divine attributes. So as sincere as those statements may sound, they're still problematic because we don't let God do anything. And that, and that goes back to that whole belief system of, well, God can only do things in this earth and he can only do it through a human being because that gives him legal right. Where, it says where in scripture? Chapter and verse for that, please. Nowhere in scripture does it say that God needs us in order to do something in the world he created. (laughs) Um, God is sovereign and we're not obstructing him. 
He's able to do what he wants to do. And we need to remember that. And I encourage you to do your own study, read through Acts, and take time to go through it and to look at the things that took place. Read things carefully. Make sure that you have a proper understanding. It is very important that you go through and do a Bible study on that and have an understanding. Now, And as we close at the end of our time together today, I want to encourage you for those that would say, well, cessationism, for example, cessationists don't believe that, that the Holy Spirit does anything anymore. And I would provide this pushback to that. When there's all this focus on the Acts, for example, if, there, if there's just as heavy focus on the Acts of the Apostles, we're really not paying attention to all of Scripture when that's done. And we need to also uh, acknowledge that if we want to go back to the, to the Acts church, we need to acknowledge this severe persecution that the church faced during that time, even under Nero. I mean, the things that you read, the, the atrocities that took place in the time of Nero um, and the persecution that, that took place for Christians, I think that there is a, there is a dismissal and even an, an ignorance, if you will, when, when people say, well, we need to go back to being the Acts church, but they don't want persecution. And they don't want to acknowledge what took place um, of the the foundation that was laid by the apostles. And in that foundation was tremendous suffering that took place. Tremendous suffering. And it's not just about the miracles, signs, and wonders that took place. And again, that authenticated the apostles' ministry. And that helped to for them, for other people to see, well, these men were truly sent by Christ. And this authenticates their ministry because this is sent from God. We need to recognize the fact that there was tremendous suffering in the foundation that was laid in for, for, the, for the church to be established. And that is also part of the Christian's life, is suffering and persecution that comes when the truth comes forth. We can't ignore that. And I would also just throw this in there as well. Matthew 24, Jesus warns that false signs and wonders would come and that it would even be possible for the elect to be deceived by such things, that false Christs and false apostles would arise that would be able to do false signs and wonders that would deceive the, even the elect. That's what I find ironic even about that title in, um, in, in Destiny Image's interview with Lydia is that th- that very title is ignoring the fact that false signs and wonders will come and deceive potentially the elect. Um, in the last days. So that's something to be aware of as well, that just because people claim miracle signs and wonders, that does not mean that it's from God. So just please keep that in mind. And lastly, as I was saying before, and didn't finish my thought, when people say, well, if you if you hold to cessationism, for example, then you just don't believe the Holy Spirit does anything anymore. That is not the case. In fact, scripture is replete with showing quite the opposite. Um, and I would say this is that if all you believe the Holy Spirit does is miracle signs and wonders, and that's where the power is, then you've dismissed a great amount of scripture, which is authored by the Holy Spirit. Let me just remind you of some things the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit regenerates us according to John chapter three, verses six and seven. The Holy Spirit convicts us according to John sixteen eight. The Holy Spirit empowers us with his gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. The Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that we are God's children, according to Galatians 4, 6. The Holy Spirit leads us, according to Galatians 5, 
18 and 25. The Holy Spirit makes us fruitful according to Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The Holy Spirit grants us and the Holy Spirit grants and nurtures us uh, in resurrection life according to Romans 8, 11. The Holy Spirit enables us to kill sin according to Romans 8, 13. The, Roman, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know how to pray according to Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth according to John 16, 13. The Holy Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18. And I'm sure that there's other passages that I have not gotten in there as far as what the Holy Spirit does. He also testifies of Christ, by the way. He does not testify of himself, and Jesus himself said that in the Gospels. He said that he would send the Helper and that he would testify of Christ. He would testify of himself. So the Holy Spirit does not point to himself. He points to Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you in that and that you need to be aware as a, as a believer of all the work that he does in your life. He is very much active in the life of a believer. And, and I would, you know, provide this gentle pushback is if we're always focusing on miracle signs and wonders and the gifts, then that is actually limiting God to just those things. And we're ignoring the vast amount of things that he does in the life of a believer. Dear Christian, he is at work in you every single day doing so much. And it's all for the glory of God. And so I hope that this has been helpful in looking at this. Again, it's not to attack anyone. It's to just look at a teaching, to look at what's being stated, some of the books that are being uh, written to talk about some of these things. And by the way, let me make this one last note. When I looked in her book, she didn't mention cessationism. That word cessation, cessationism, is not even mentioned in her book. Um, if anything, she, she does talk about um, this one thing. And I know I said I was closing, but I wanted to look at this one last thing while I'm thinking about it. In her book, uh, when I typed in the word miracles, for example, I, I, I typed in gifts, I typed in continuation, cessationism, couldn't find anything with that. But when I typed in miracles, this one thing did pop up. And she talks about, in the book of Acts, there was no such thing as a powerless Christian. You were walking in the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit, or you simply did not know Jesus. In our day, we go to great lengths to make up new theology to excuse our lack of power. I think this is what she may be alluding to, to cessationism. She says, people preach that miracles are not for today, but it is usually because they have never prayed through to see a miracle for themselves, which I find that... Um, I find that very sad to make that deductive reasoning about everybody and, and do a blanketed statement. That is not true. Um, if we prayed like the early church prayed, we would see what they saw in our midst is what she says. We must start believing and praying in faith until our experience lines up with God's word. And then she says, I do not have the right to base what I believe on my own experience. Everything I believe must have its foundation in the unchanging eternal word of God. That means I must press in for miracles because they are all over the Bible. And when I do, my experience soon lines up with my belief. Powerlessness in the church is an evil thing, and we cannot condone it or pretend that it's normal. We have to stop accusing God of doing nothing when we have not yet begun to pray. We must mind the gap. In my truly final closing thoughts, I just want to say this. I think we dismiss and ignore that the greatest miracle that takes place is someone being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that they are given the promise of eternal life because Jesus Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection. There is great hope in that. And we cannot ignore that miracle working power in the life of a born again believer that's taking place when God does that work. Secondly, I want to say this to those who may um, 
feel condemnation because of that, those very statements. And that you're saying, well, I've prayed for God to heal me. I've prayed for God. I've, I've been fervent in prayer and I'm trusting God. Even if I never see that come to pass, I'm still believing. I think it's also a very, um, it's very damaging when you tell someone, well, you just haven't seen your miracle because you haven't prayed hard enough or you haven't done these things enough. It diminishes the sovereignty of God to have such thinking. And how about we we encourage people to pray? Pray for healing, most certainly. There's nothing wrong with asking God to God do, uh, heal this loved one. Do uh, Ask for you to do a miracle in my body or to, to reverse these things they've done and repenting if, if there have been patterns in our life that have been have brought sickness or just understanding we live in a fallen world, trusting the Lord no matter what we see. And even if he doesn't heal us, how about we encourage people to pray, God, sanctify me in the process of this or sanctify this person that they would be conformed to your image, even if they're never healed on this side of, uh, of eternity, that you would use this for your glory that you would be glorified even in the midst of this. And be, and God being glorified isn't always for someone to have a physical healing. Maybe it's in that person being conformed to the image of Christ and their suffering, that it draws them closer to God because of their hardness of heart or that, that they... Um, that they haven't been walking with the Lord as they should in those times. And it's drawing them and it's drawing them into his word. It's drawing them into moments of prayer. It's drawing them into those times of compassion for others. It's drawing them to further love God because in their suffering, they are drawing closer to Christ. Maybe we need to understand that um, miracles aren't promised to everybody on this side of heaven. Healing is not promised in your body on this side of heaven. We are told that our bodies are wasting away. And that's what scripture says. But that these light momentary afflictions, as I've talked about before, are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. When we're always focusing on this manifestation, and if we don't have it, then it's because we haven't prayed enough, we haven't fasted enough, we haven't decreed enough, we haven't declared enough, we haven't, we haven't done enough. Then we diminish the sovereignty of God. And we're not recognizing that God's power by his spirit is at work in true born again believers. And that is not defined by miracles, signs, and wonders that we can see and understand with our own ability. It is recognizing that there are times that we are going to suffer as believers. It is promised. It, it was in the Acts church. And it's, and it's alive and well today, and Jesus promised his disciples they would suffer. If we think that we are going to escape suffering, and that suffering is okay for our Savior, but it's not for us as a believer to take up our cross, and I'm not saying that Lydia didn't say this, because again, there's things that she said that I couldn't agree with. What I cannot agree with is that we must have all these manifestations in order for it to, to always be the power of God. That's not true, because the power of God is in the gospel. And the gospel does not require miracle signs and wonders and casting out demons in order for God's power to be on display. And we should know that because of the false signs and wonders that can come in and creep in. As again, as I said, Matthew 24 says, we've got to understand the truth of scripture rightly divided. We cannot have this imbalance of miracle signs and wonders always having to be present in order for God's power to be on display. And we need to approach scripture in such a way that we recognize that and we recognize what the true power of God is. 
The other thing I want to say before I exit today is her statement of saying we must start believing and praying in faith until our experience lines up with God, with uh, lines up with God's word. And then going on to say, I do not have the right to base what I believe on my own experience. There are people in scripture that are listed in the, the halls of faith, as, as many of us have heard it in Hebrews 11, that never saw the promise that God gave to them. That does not mean that God's promise was not fulfilled. They just didn't see it on this side of heaven. You're not told in scripture to continue to pray until you get what you believe for and to have it manifest. Because the fact of the matter is, you are not promised that you will be healed of your affliction. You are not promised a miracle in every aspect of your life on this side of heaven. You are not promised prosperity. You are not promised any of those things that the world has told you or that some of the false gospels have told you. However, you are as a believer promised eternal life. You are promised that what Jesus did has been finished on the cross. You are promised that you will be with him forever in eternity. And that, my friend, is what we look towards. We don't look to make sure that our experiences line up with God's word. And we certainly don't try to finagle God's word to line up with our experiences. But we look to Christ for our hope. We look to the word of God as our final authority in what it says. We look to the scriptures to encourage us and realize that not every passage is prescriptive for our lives. We look to it to be encouraged and to know that all of it is pointing back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And we don't have to be in this place of going, well, I'm just not praying enough, and I'm not fasting enough, and I'm, and I'm not doing this and that, and I'm just not on fire. I'm not as on fire as someone else is. They're not your standard. Christ is is the one you look towards for your hope. He's the one that you look towards to be encouraged in your faith. He is the object of your faith. It's not your faith that's the object of your faith. It's what he it's what he did. And what he did is sufficient. So I I just I want to encourage you in that. And and also this 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 teaching of that you must have these manifestations or you just don't know God or you're just not walking in power. Listen The power is in the gospel, and the gospel is sufficient. And if you see God do a miracle in someone's life, and he heals them, or he intervenes in a a truly miraculous way, then praise God. If someone gets healed, God sovereignly decides to heal somebody. And we know without a shadow of a doubt, like the, the medical reports verify and show this person had this, this terminal illness or this lifelong illness, and now they're healed. Praise God, because we know that he he is able to do that. And under his sovereign choice, that he will do it. And you know what else? When he doesn't sovereignly choose to heal, we praise him anyway. And we glorify him because we know that the power rests in the gospel, testifying of the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is most certain. I hope that this has helped you today, and I hope that you will understand that in order for us to avoid deception, we must go back to what the Word of God says in the proper context. And when we have these discussions with people, whether we're on the side of cessationism or continuationism, 
that we're able to do it in a respectful way that's honoring Christ, that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that when we are talking with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, when we disagree on certain issues that are not affecting the foundation of the gospel, that we remember who we are representing and that we want to glorify God in our speech and in our conduct and always going back to scripture and not what does my experience say, but what does the Bible have to say? Be blessed today by the truth of God's word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.